You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. All the markets that exist today are not going to be fit for purpose in 10 years, 20 years. As we think about all the benefits of the transition, one of the things that is also going to happen is there's going to be a lot of fallout. There are going to be companies that go bankrupt. For September 29th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This show marks our sixth anniversary, and I am more thrilled and humbled than ever that we have not only made it this far, but that the show is now able to pair our staff properly and support me full-time without any parent organization, sponsors, or advertisers to help pay the bills. It's a rare privilege to be able to make a living by saying what you think is true, and I know it. What can I say except thank you from the bottom of my heart to our loyal subscribers who have made this milestone possible. As is our tradition, our friend Jonathan Kumi has once again joined us for this anniversary show to take a look back at the developments of the past year and review some of the hot topics in energy transition. And we had a lot of material to cover with this one, so get yourself a nice cuppa and settle back because it's longer than our usual shows. We start with a discussion about the energy elements of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate and consider how they stack up against the actual infrastructure needs of the U.S. We then have a look at the new climate assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and consider what it all means. We also revisit the disconnect between how that modeling framework is structured and what policymakers and journalists really need. And we try to identify how climate scientists can be more helpful in that respect. We then move on to discuss the case for and against divestment and other supply-side strategies to reduce the consumption of fossil fuels. We proceed to tackle the zombie theory of value deflation in solar and discuss in more detail than ever before why it's mistaken. After that, I deliver what is possibly my longest rant yet on this podcast about corruption in the nuclear industry and why climate hawks must start getting more discerning about who they're backing in the struggle to take action on climate change. And we wrap it up with a brief look at some of John's recent work on the energy requirements of the internet and Bitcoin mining, as well as a new tool to explore EIA's vast stores of data. Then in the news segment, we review the ongoing efforts in Congress to electrify the U.S. Postal Service vehicle fleet. We update two stories about corruption associated with the U.S. nuclear industry. We hail the world's first production of a batch of steel without using fossil fuels. We have a look at the world's largest battery storage system. And we review a recent debate over the possible merits of blue hydrogen. And before we jump into the interview, I just want to remind you all to check out our new job board, which is free to use for all annual subscribers. And I want to encourage our annual subscribers to use the three free share links you get each year to share our show with a friend or colleague. You can find those on the Managed Subscription page on our website. Finally, don't forget that we offer half-price annual subscriptions to students, as well as graduated discounts for groups, academic institutions, corporations, and other organizations. You can find all of our subscription options and discounts by clicking on the Become a Member button on our website. And now, without further ado, let's review the year that was with our old friend Jonathan Kumi from our conversation recorded August 18th, 2021. All right, so let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. 
you know, I love having you back for these anniversary shows to review some of the major stories in energy transition over the past year, because it's kind of more of a conversational style than our typical shows, which are really highly structured. And I just think it's fun to kick around a lot of ideas with you. So we have a big slate of ideas to talk about today or topics that have been current in energy transition circles. And I think to begin with, we should talk about the trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed the Senate just days before we started taping this interview. So let's briefly talk about some of the energy-related provisions of the bill. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in there, like water and so on, but let's just talk about the energy bit. In total, the package contains about $550 billion in entirely new investments, including money for electric car charging stations and zero-emission school buses. And the spending is mostly being paid for without raising taxes. The bulk of the funding comes from repurposing unspent coronavirus relief money, as well as tightening enforcement on reporting gains from crypto investments. I think the CBO said that it would add about $256 billion to the debt. That doesn't bother me too much because I think if you did a cost-benefit analysis on this whole package, you'd quickly find that that $256 billion is repaid many times over in terms of benefits to the overall economy. But as I look through this bill, they're certainly hitting on all the important points, but they all just sort of seem a little bit short of what's really needed. Yeah, the sausage making is always a little hard to watch. When you compare what came out of this most recent agreement with what was initially proposed, there's definitely been big cuts in things that relate to the energy transition. And so electric school buses, EV charging, and some of the other energy and climate-related issues all saw pretty big cuts from the initial offers that people were making. So you raise an important point, which is that These really are investments, and people talk about government spending, but they really need to distinguish between investments that will pay off over decades from actual spending. Those are two separate things, and it's perfectly sensible when interest rates are at zero real interest for a long time to come to use that money to build infrastructure that will pay back manifold over years. Yeah. You know, on the electric school bus point in particular, they've got $7.5 billion allocated to that. And that's a push to replace existing school buses with zero emission buses. And let's not kid ourselves, those are going to be electric. Those are not going to be hydrogen buses. And so it's not zero emission. That's just the language used to get it through the political process. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. They're battery electric vehicles is what they are or what they will be. And they've specifically directed some of that funding to help lower-income rural and tribal communities replace their bus feeds, which I think is fantastic. That's absolutely essential. But in my previous work on electric vehicles and charging infrastructure, you know, I got a pretty good sense of what this stuff costs. And the battery premium for a battery electric vehicle bus over a conventional diesel bus is about quarter of a million dollars. And so if you take that $7.5 billion and you allocate it entirely to just paying that premium, it would cover about 30,000 buses, which is great. But there are nearly half a million school buses in the U.S. So if the money were spent that way, it would only cover about 6% of the school buses in the U.S. I mean, maybe they could make the funds go a little farther by allocating it under a partial cost-sharing strategy with the schools or something like that. But it's a down payment at best. Yeah, I mean, we do know that the battery costs are coming down very substantially. We do know that the benefits 
of not having children breathe toxic diesel fumes are pretty substantial when you count them properly. I do think it's a relatively modest down payment at best on this. Yeah. And if you really wanted to push the market in the right direction, you would have a much bigger effort to get electric school buses in the hands of the school districts much more rapidly. I mean, the Chinese, I think it was at Shenzhen where they replaced their entire bus fleet with electric vehicles in one year. That's the kind of scale that we need. Exactly. The societal economics are very clear and we should absolutely be moving towards electric vehicles. The other key point to keep in mind is that those buses are sitting around during the day. If you have big batteries in the buses and they happen to be sitting around during the day, boy, is that a great load shifting opportunity. Well, not only a load shifting opportunity, but a V to G opportunity. Yeah, and it's, exactly. It's one of the rare V to G opportunities that I think actually has legs. There's a couple of interesting pilots related to that that are going on now in Maryland and Massachusetts with Highland Electric. And I think there's a few others that are not coming to mind right now. So yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. But again, it's just a beginning. And I think your reference to the Shenzhen bus fleet is apt because I think that was like 60,000 buses they did in a year, right? For one city. And so it's that kind of scale that we really ought to be going for here. But obviously the Congress, the way it's currently constituted, that's probably not possible. Those kind of things are a lot easier to do in a command economy. Yeah, of course. You know, when I look at this public transit aspect of the bill, there's $39 billion there, which is a good chunk of change. And senators in the White House were citing a dot estimate that 40% of buses and 23% of subway and rail cars are in bad shape. So that funding would certainly go a long way toward upgrading those vehicles. And there's also money for new bus routes and making public transit more accessible to seniors and Americans with disabilities. So I think that's all good. But again, when you think about What's really needed here in public transit, $39 billion is, again, at best, a down payment. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like there's much thought. Like, it's just money being allocated even, in this case, for replacing school buses. They're not really thinking about a well-thought-out strategy to get the learning curves going in these different sectors of the transportation sector. And so that, to me, is a kind of conceptual flaw in how this is being done that's unfortunate because anywhere there's tens or hundreds of thousands of vehicles, there should be provision for economies of scale. They should be funding these prototypes. They should be funding different programs for getting more of these devices in the hands of the actual users so they can get feedback and learn from that. But we're just seeing the kind of top line numbers here from tens of billions of dollars. I think you make a good point there. It would make more sense to approach a big infrastructure project like this or a bill like this in a comprehensive way with an eye toward where are we going with this, where this is just the beginning and then we expect to get these benefits and we expect to get down learning curves and we expect these other things. And instead it has this flavor of just like each of these line items was just sort of the result of some sort of political horse trading and it was just a number. It wasn't the result of a careful analysis. And I kind of feel the same way about the EV charging stations. Biden initially asked for $15 billion, and the White House said that that would cover half a million charging stations. Congress cut that proposal in half, so we got $7.5 billion now in this bill. 
But again, going back to my experience on the vehicle charging infrastructure side of things, the U.S. has about 43,000 charging stations now, and Biden set a goal of having half of the new cars in this country electric by 2030. So if you do the math, you know that you need significantly more charging stations across the nation. And now you have to figure out, well, what kind? Obviously, if you're buying $5,000 level two chargers, that's a whole different world than if you're buying $100,000 DC fast chargers. So I'm not really sure what they expect to come out of this. Is this 7.5 billion number just seems like a number. Like it, yeah, like I've yeah. still not seen any detail about what kind of chargers or where or how the money's going to be allocated or why they've chosen that number or how they think a particular arrangement of different speed of chargers is going to support the number of vehicles they're aiming for. Like, none of that is here. Yeah, and maybe that's just inherent in these kind of horse-trading political situations. I feel like that we who are more analytical would like to see some justification for these things, but that's not always forthcoming, I'm afraid. Well, I did do a little calculation on it, and just for the benefit of our listeners, I'll share those numbers. So a recent analysis by the International Council on Clean Transportation estimates that the U.S. will need 2.4 million public and workplace charges by 2030 to meet its goals. Today, we have 216,000. So we need about 10x what we have now. But that's a non-specific mix of slow and fast chargers. We don't know how many of those are five or $6,000 level two chargers and how many of them are $100,000, 150-kilowatt DC fast chargers. But if you just took that $7.5 billion and allocated it entirely to DC fast chargers at the rate of, let's say, $50,000 per charger. So let's say that the federal government will cover half the cost, but just for the hardware, and then the developer is going to have to cover the other half the cost and the installation costs and so on. That $7.5 billion would cover about 150,000 chargers, which again is a start. Yeah. <laughs> and for those who, who want to go deeper on that, they could listen to episode 139 where Robert Walton actually interviewed me about this topic. Well, anyway, let's move on. But let me just say one more thing about that because yeah, the, the yeah. need for chargers is dependent on a certain policy and business context. And so right. there's assumptions built into those assessments. One of the assumptions is how much charging will happen in people's houses, how much charging will happen at work. And I think that there's a huge area where businesses can make chargers available to their employees. There's certainly examples of this, but there's certainly a great possibility for a lot more of that sort of charging at work. And that's where you start to think about, well, okay, it's during the day. So again, you've got all these cars sitting in the parking lot. What a great opportunity for having the batteries interact with the power system yeah. in a sensible way. So the idea that there's this need for 10 times more is dependent on a set of assumptions about the policy context. And that I think it's important for us to kind of think through where the most effective place would be to promote these new chargers and to catalyze private capital to do it in addition to the government investments. Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly hope that 
when this money actually starts getting toward an allocation strategy, that somebody does take a system approach to it like that and think about, well, okay, what kind of a system are we going to get when we make these kind of investments and what do we want? You're absolutely right. Workplace charging could deliver a lot of additional benefits if it was done right. And right now we have a really weak workplace charging sector in this country. Public DC fast charging networks and residential chargers are way ahead of workplace charging. And I think a lot of that's just because we haven't had incentive programs to compel employers to invest this way. Or just to encourage them. I mean, I think this is one of the situations where it's a benefit to employees. It would make life easier for everyone. It would be better for the power grid. There's a whole bunch of reasons to do this. And investments of the scale that they're talking about in this new bill would be enough to catalyze a lot of workplace charging. Yeah. So they wouldn't have to pay for 100% because the companies will see benefits as well. And that's one potential model for getting a lot of fast charging in place in a way that would be very effective for helping the grid. Well, on a related note, if you think about the system benefits of these investments, how about the fact that this bill offers basically twice as much money for roads and bridges as it does for rail? (laughs) I mean, think about what kind of society do you want to have? What sort of topology of transportation do you want to have? That really doesn't make much sense to me. Now, I get it because we have a lot of roads and bridges in this country that are really in bad shape. But you also have to think, like, $66 billion for rail, okay, and it doesn't specifically call for any high-speed rail. To me, that falls well short of how we ought to be thinking about federal investment in road transportation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a bigger issue than just this bill. I think that you need a kind of complete reassessment of how transport money is allocated. And yeah. so it's it's clearly an issue that we're going to need to wrestle with. But given the current political climate, this is at least some steps in the right direction. Well, for a final point on the infrastructure bill, there are a number of grid-related investments. There's $47 billion allocated to quote-unquote resilience, and that's really more about cybersecurity and climate change mitigation, trying to protect infrastructure from attacks, as well as offering some funding to address things like droughts and flooding and erosion and other things that impact our infrastructure systems. And then there's also $65 billion for the power grid, which is specifically about grid reliability and resiliency, which I think is, again, more about making sure the power grid isn't hacked. And we actually discussed that at length in episode 114 with Andy Bachman. And it's not really clear to me what the overlap is between that $65 billion for the power grid, which specifically calls out resiliency, and then this separate $47 billion for resilience. <laughs> I don't know. I well, guess I'm glad that that's finally on the agenda. Yeah, I think it's important to focus some real effort on impediments to building more transmission. If you want to talk about the power grid and what we can do about it, the expansion of the transmission system would be number one in my book. Obviously, security is important, but it's a little unclear whether this money is going to help with that at all. A lot of that stuff is regulatory. It's not primarily a money issue. It's a regulatory impediments, public response to proposals, nimbyism, and so on. So I feel like some chunk of that really needs to be focused on how do we change the way we regulate and approve new transmission. 
because it's yeah. not working. Well, I agree with you on that, although I don't see anything in this top-line summary of this bill that is specifically targeted to transmission. No, but it's the first thing that I think of when I think of power grid. Yeah, that yeah. isn't what they're focused on. Yeah. Well, I am glad that they're finally going to get serious about cybersecurity on the grid, because that really is, I think, an area that's needed attention that has been sort of neglected for far too long. Yeah, I agree. Well, anyway, this Senate bill still needs to be reconciled with the House legislation before it goes to President Biden, and then we'll see what comes out of that. But that's not really the end of it, is it? Because after that, there's the budget reconciliation. Yeah, and people are talking about that as a much bigger top-line amount, and so who knows what's going to go into that. But I'm sure some of that at least will go towards things that we regard as good progress for climate and for energy infrastructure. So that's hopeful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. we got a lot of other topics to cover here. The other, I guess, big bombshell that, at least in our world of late, was the IPCC AR6 report, or at least the first part of three of that report to come out. You know, that just dropped before our conversation again a couple of days ago. And that's the latest report on climate change from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, for those who don't speak those acronyms. So this assessment report, known as AR6, is the first major update that the IPCC has released in eight years. And I guess it's notable for both what's new in it and what's not. Yes, sure. So one of the things that's clear from the new IPCC Working Group 1 report is that the message about human responsibility for warming the planet is even stronger than it was in the last assessment report. So we are even more confident that humans are warming the planet and that this warming that we project going forward is likely to be dangerous for the earth and for humanity. We've been saying basically the same thing for the last 30 years, but the messages keep getting stronger and stronger. We hope that soon people will start to take them more seriously. Yeah. Well, it is an excellent report, and I agree that the language got much clearer in this one than it has in previous reports. Like, they emphasized that the finding that humans have warmed the planet is, quote-unquote, unequivocal, that this is causing, quote, widespread and rapid changes to the Earth's oceans, ice, and land surface, and that many parts of the climate system, that the present state of many parts of the climate system is unprecedented over many centuries to many thousands of years. So they've gotten very clear about the language for a change. Yeah, and that's a good sign. But the thing that strikes me every time one of these reports come out is that there's this big disconnect between what we know about the climate science and then what responses governments are actually proposing to solve the problem. And almost invariably, these responses are nowhere near what is needed. And that's the frustration working in this field for so long is that we keep talking about how urgent this is. We keep explaining that this is a problem that depends on cumulative emissions, and then not enough happens between one assessment report and the next, and we're in even a worse hole by the time we get to the next one. So we really need a kind of comprehensive reset of responses to make people focus on aggressive emissions reductions getting to zero emissions as soon as possible, because that's, at this point, what we need to do. 
Yeah, I didn't hear any government come out in response to this report and say, ah, right, okay, we're going to phase out fossil fuels. Yeah, well, that's another topic about whether the countries that actually benefit from producing fossil fuels are in a position to stop their local industry from producing. That's a real disconnect. There's a a set of arguments that come up about how this is only a demand problem and we need to reduce demand, but increasingly it is a problem of constraining supply as well. But it's an internal political problem, even for countries like Norway, which generally does the right thing on environmental issues, but they have a big oil industry. So they still are planning on new investments for their oil industry in coming decades, even though the IEA says a one and a half C world is incompatible with new fossil fuel investments from now on. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, We're still a long way. Yeah, that's the disconnect that we're seeing is that People in government will mouth support for the IPCC reports, but then they'll go ahead and approve new investments for development of fossil fuels within their territories. And so it, it highlights the political difficulty of making these changes happen, but it also makes it clear that current actions are inconsistent with a one and a half C world. We have to stop investing in new infrastructure new fossil infrastructure. We have to move those investments towards zero emissions infrastructure. It's the only way out of this. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I oh, I really hesitate to bring this up, but I just have to. <laughs> RCP 8.5, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? I mean, even in AR6, there's this overemphasis on these extreme warming scenarios, including RCP 8.5, which is the highest warming scenario. And it still underrepresents, I think, the progress that energy transition has made so far. And as a result, it also sort of underrepresents the progress that we could make in the future. And for those of our listeners who are so blessed to have not experienced our previous conversations on this topic. (laughs) They can go back and listen to episodes 49, 112, 116, and 117. But I mean, even in this new AR6 report, they give a a likely, meaning 67% chance of climate sensitivity range of 2.5 degrees to 4 degrees centigrade, which is a narrower range in the past. So in that sense, they've made some progress in that they're not rating RCP 8.5 and it's 5 degrees plus of warming as being likely. But still, in this framework, there's no scenario between what they call SSP2 4.5, which projects about a 2.7 degree increase by 2100, and SSP3 7.0, which projects a nearly 4 degree increase. So there's a huge gap there between 2.7 degrees and 4 degrees. Or, you know, for those who like the RCP terminology, there's no scenario of 6 watts per meter squared of warming to fill the gap between the 4.5 watts per meter squared and the 7 watts per meter squared. So the problem there is that that is in that very range that there's no scenario. That's the range that we're in. That's the range that current policies are guiding us toward. So our current trajectory has us headed toward, I think, about 2.5 degrees of warming or SSP2 4.5. There's certainly uncertainty, but probably a bit more than that. Yeah, I mean, it could be 2.7 or whatever. But if, if if you take the NDCs, National Defined Contributions, under the Paris Agreement, and you take all the other current policies into account, I think that gets you close to that 2.5. So I think with more aggressive policies, 
we could, in fact, steer toward two degrees or even lower, although I think that 1.5 is probably out of reach since we're already at 1.1 and off to a slow start. So I think that's the message we should be putting out there, that we're we're not currently on a path of absolute doom. We're not on a path to the worst case scenarios that every journalist has written about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the there's a few points. In this. So one is, you mentioned the climate sensitivity range in the new AR6. They narrowed that range a little bit. The climate sensitivity is the likely increase in average surface temperature for a doubling of greenhouse gas concentrations. And now the range is between two and a half and four C. So we have slightly more confidence in a narrower range. And that's important because we've eliminated or at least reduced our assessment of the likelihood of extreme cases on either end. On the one side, it reduces the likelihood of extreme warming, but it also makes it extremely unlikely that we're going to get lucky and there's going to be a very low climate sensitivity, which many of the climate deniers like to hold on to. The second point is that we've made progress, at least based on our committed policies, compared to where we were a decade or so ago. I think you could make a credible argument, if you look at the data, back in 2009 or so, 2010, that we were close to an 8.5 path. Now, whether that could have continued, there's all these questions about how much coal there is, how much you could exploit, that's a separate issue. We saw China increasing their emissions at an incredible rate in the early part of the 21st century. And so it was plausible in the kind of late 2000s to say we're on that 8.5 path. But because of all the effort that we've made, because of all the progress in the cost reductions for renewables especially, we've certainly bent the curve. And so I think we're on a path to somewhere between 3 and 4C. Other people think it's lower, as you stated. But we're certainly not where we were in 2009 or so. And so that's a really important point for people to realize is that business as usual depends on time and context. So business as usual in 2006 is a different trajectory than business as usual in 2021. But I think that gets confused in the conversation. I think people are not careful in their language when they talk about these different projections. I think that's true, but I also think it really would have been helpful here if the IPCC had put out a scenario that represents the trajectory we're currently on. Yes, I agree. I completely agree. <laughs> completely and agree. And instead, there's this gap between the two scenarios, and we're in that gap. So yeah, they yeah. prioritize these scenarios clearly for scientific purposes first, and not for plausibility. And I've already seen more defenses come out of RCP 8.5 saying, well, this is really useful. If you want to whack your model with a sledgehammer and see what happens, RCP 8.5 is useful with that. I'm like, fine, in your rarefied world of modeling, you go ahead and play those games. The rest of us just really want to know what's going to happen to the bloody planet. Yeah. And it would really be helpful if you put a story out there that we could follow about that. Yeah, and I think that that's a disconnect between the climate science modeling community and the people who focus on policy. There's a real yeah. resistance among the science types to doing a sort of actual business as usual scenario. To me, one of the conceptual errors that the IPCC has fallen into because of this disconnect is creating different baseline scenarios. It's a very interesting methodological exercise different 
population growth, different assumptions about economic activity, and so on. But ultimately, from the policy perspective, you need to know what is our best estimate of where we're headed if we don't change our current trajectory. And we need that over time because that's the measure of whether our current efforts are having any sort of success. And then over time, a uh, measure of how much progress we're making towards our ultimate goal. And so one of the great flaws, I think, in the way the IPCC scenarios are conceived is to create a set of baselines that have widely varying assumptions about population growth, economic activity, other key drivers. It's fine to do that for sensitivity analysis, but there was a real resistance to say, this is the path we think we're on. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that reluctance has gotten us into a lot of trouble because it creates this nice range of scenarios, but it doesn't create policy urgency. It doesn't help people who are not used to thinking about uncertainties to understand where we're really headed. So it creates a real disconnect between what policymakers need and what the science-based modelers, at least, are saying. Exactly. And so, as a result, I think we can be pretty confident now that lay people and journalists and policy-oriented people will once again misunderstand <laughs> this incredibly complex modeling framework, which, after spending hundreds of hours on it myself, I feel like I still sort of have the most tenuous grasp of how it works. It's just really, really complicated. And so... I'm already expecting little press coverage of the trajectory we're actually on, whether it's 2.5 or 3 or whatever, and how much warming we might get if we try harder on our policies. That's the story that we need to get, and that's the story that's not going to be told. Right. Instead, we're going to get more stories about the big headline-making high-end scenarios like 5 degrees of warming under RCP 8.5, and I'm just disgusted about that, yeah, frankly. It's, it's frustrating. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. 
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a new study from Atlas Public Policy, electrifying the fleet of vehicles operated by the U.S. Postal Service could save the U.S. government as much as $4.3 billion, and electrifying other vehicles in the federal fleet could save another $1.18 billion. There is no money for it in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but in May, Democrats proposed $8 billion in funding to electrify the Postal Service fleet and build the requisite charging infrastructure. 28 House Democrats have called for an additional $85 billion for chargers in the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package now under consideration. In February, the Postal Service awarded a $482 million contract to Oshkosh Defense to purchase replacements for the fleet's worn-out trucks, but it only called for 10% of the vehicles to be electric. House Democrats then introduced a resolution in March that would freeze the contract with Oshkosh and review whether the award was consistent with the federal obligations in Biden's executive order for electrifying the federal fleet. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who was appointed unanimously by the Trump appointee-dominated Postal Service Board of Governors and who ordered the removal of post office collection boxes, the destruction of mail sorting equipment, and a reduction in service levels just before the 2020 general election, which was largely conducted by mail, has defended the Oshkosh Award and has opposed the full electrification of the service's fleet. Item 2. As I mentioned in this interview, the corruption associated with nuclear plants is hardly limited to the first energy nuclear bailout story in Ohio. The story of corruption around the V.C. Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, which we first covered three and a half years ago. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.